My name's Mark Titchener and I'm an artist. I live and work in London and I'm in the Whitechapel Art Gallery today in the East End of London, which has been closed for two years now and will open after a multi-million pound refit. I'm here because as a way of celebrating the opening of the gallery, I've decided to look at the relationship between arts and liberty, which is something that I think about very much in terms of my practice. And I very much believe that art has an important role to play within public life, outside of what the art market or the art world dictates. As part of this, I've spoken to a variety of people from a range of spheres, including the philosopher Anthony Grayling, who is here with me now. Hi there, Mark. Hi. We're in one of the new galleries of Whitechapel, and it's Gallery 2, where there's an installation by the artist Goshka Makuga. The centrepiece of the installation is a large tapestry version of Guernica by Picasso, which originally hung in the United Nations building in New York. So I would like to begin by asking Anthony, um, what have philosophers thought about the relationship between art and liberty over the years? Well, there's a consensus in the philosophical world on this matter, which is that without liberty, that is, without political and social liberty, you don't get art which is worth anything at all, really. You get formulaic art. You only have to think about the Soviet Union and how it prescribed to artists what they could portray, what messages they could give. Uh, They existed really to serve the propaganda arm of the state. Um, And if you want genuine creativity, you've got to have all the horizons open. You can't say to people in advance of what they do that they must do this or that. You have to let creativity flourish. Liberty is essential to art. Do you feel that there's a kind of moral imperative, both for artists of all kinds and for people just involved in cultural life and thought, to to engage with ideas that are currents and part within the social realm, such as liberty. Yes, there are a number of responsibilities in play here. I mean, for any citizen who is uh, going to be properly a citizen of a community, um, he or she ought to be informed, ought to be part of the conversation, ought to stand up and be counted uh, for, for their views, take responsibility for them. But there's also a responsibility for people to, if, the, if they're artists, to uh, make their contribution to that discussion and to do it fearlessly, to say what they think, to respond to their uh, circumstances, politically and otherwise, um, and a responsibility for the community to let them do it. Because it's very, very much better to have a, uh, as it were, a free market in ideas, in perspectives, in responses, than to have things closed down and to give self-censorship, really, uh, the, the, the rule over what people do and think. Well, one thing which I think uh, art critics have identified recently is the idea that a lot of art that's been produced, particularly in the West in the last two, 10 years, has kind of become decadent. And, I mean, perhaps the suggestion is that when times are good, it's easy to make nice art, as it were. Do you ever feel that perhaps better art comes out of adversity or limitations and the controls that can take place when things are bad? Well, of course, that there are many sources of art, that is, impulses towards the making of art. But um, the two main ones are, on the one hand, the urgency felt by the artist himself or herself to do that work. And on the other hand, the existence of people with money who pay for it. And uh, you get some artists who are more attracted by the latter reason than impelled by the former reason. And in good times, the, the latter operates too much. You know, uh, Andy Warhol's uh, definition of art is what you can get away with really does take over uh, in good times when there's lots of money sloshing around. And it's, so it's interesting 
very, very good stuff tends to get made by people who, not that we want our artists to starve in garrets or anything, but, but who are starving in garrets, but yet making art because they, they have to. One of the other people that I spoke to um, as part of this project was Shami Chakrabarti, the director of the Human Rights and Civil Liberties Group, Liberty. Um, and also I talked to her about the relationship between art and, and liberty. If you were to look at history all over the world, you'd probably, I would guess that you'd find that artists are more, for want of a better word, liberal uh, than not. You know, there aren't that many great sort of fascist artists, really. You know, every great totalitarian regime has a go to mm. produce its, its art. But I think there's, there's something about the artist that is, you know, that, that is just instinctively concerned about. Maybe it is because you need the freedom to explore. You need, certainly, freedom of conscience freedom of expression, probably some personal privacy as well, just to operate as an artist. There's just a, there's just a natural link between the artist and, the, uh, and human rights principles. But I think in terms of what you do, you provoke, don't you? I think there's something interesting you said there about how there's art generated by, you mentioned totalitarian regimes, how art often historically has been used as propaganda. Yeah. In historical sense, it becomes very transparent when that's happening. Yeah. And I wonder whether we'll look back at the art of this kind of cultural blooming of the last kind of 10, yeah. 20 years, and we'll see... I mean, obviously, there's the, the way the market leads, yeah. leads up, but whether we'll see this as being like a kind of period of libertarian propaganda or... Libertarian. I don't know. You know, sometimes you do need a bit of time, don't you? You need a bit of time and space to really evaluate something like that. There's art and then there's propaganda. Even the words. Art is made by the, inst- by the individual or the collective artists who are free to choose what they do and say what they want to say, whether it's popular or unpopular. Propaganda is another word and we use a different word because uh, propaganda has been pumped out by governments. But then that idea of the artist as the sort of uh, a free individual yeah. within society is a very, very politicised, mythological kind of idea. Of course it is because, and then as you say, the market, the element of the market and, and, and so on and, and, and the part that that plays. So we're now in another area of the Whitechapel Gallery, another new gallery space, and uh, in what was the former library, and we're in an exhibition called Passports, which is um, a selection of works uh, from early in artists' careers. And we're standing specifically in front of a piece, a painting by Chris Ophelia. This is quite resonant in that Chris Ophelia uh, was in an exhibition called Sensation that travelled to New York, and one of his works in the show caused a lot of controversy and threw up many issues about censorship and what was acceptable to portray in art. So thinking about, uh, about censorship, how much do you feel that liberty is essential to artistic practice? Well, the idea of censorship is, uh, is a very interesting one uh, in that um, immediately, of course, it raises the question of, of the freedom of expression. And we know two things. First, that freedom of expression is absolutely essential because without it, you don't have any other civil liberties or freedoms. You can't, for example, lay claim to your other freedoms. You can't defend them when they're attacked. You can't, for example, have a due process in law unless you can 
uh, accuse those who have harmed you or defend yourself against those who accuse you. You can't get information, you can't have democratic elections, and so on and so on. So freedom of expression is absolutely vital. And yet at the same time, it is not absolute. Because, you know, to cry fire in a crowded theatre, this is the old familiar example, uh, is, um, is harmful. But the, 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 the way to think about it is to say that prior restraint, that is stopping people from expressing themselves in advance, can only be done in very, very rare circumstances and only if it's very uh, well justified doing it. You can, after the event, um, try and find a remedy if somebody's freedom of expression has harmed others. But if you do it beforehand, then you really are going to put a cap on all our other potential, not, not, not just our civil liberties, but also the very possibility of art itself. One of the other people I spoke to on the project was someone called Jason Horsley. Um, Jason is a, an author and a screenwriter and filmmaker, and he feels very much that freedom becomes about the, the liberation of the self um, and also how the self relates to society as a whole. He's also very interested in the idea of the fragmented self and how that we are in fact many, many sort of different personalities um, held together culturally by this, in this sort of single coherent point. Everybody knows what it's like to go from one mood to another and, and how incredibly susceptible we are to our moods and how totally they, they alter our sense of ourselves and our interaction with our environment, well, I think, you know, this uh, moods are, are just a subtler indication of just how fractured we are in our psyche. And because we don't allow ourselves to be a multitude of different personalities, different points of view, because we constantly need to maintain this sense of continuity and of consistency, we, I think what we do is we paper over the cracks so we, we basically stitch together, we spend half our life stitching together these different points of view that we have or these different roles that we play. We want to make sure that they actually do fit together in this complete picture. And so we, we create, in a sense, this sort of Frankenstein's monster of, a, of, a, of an ego or an identity which forces all these different personas that are actually, a lot of them are at war, just as, you know, our desire to be a good father, let's say, is going to be in conflict with our desire to be successful in the world, in conflict with our desire to have inner peace, etc. ad infinitum. You know, we have all these different driving forces in our psyche and they, they're not aligned, they're not in harmony. So, Anthony, um, I just wanted to ask you about what you felt about how the ego and our sense of ourself and liberty fit together? Well, in a number of ways, one of the most important ways is that uh, unless we have individual liberty in the form of autonomy, of self-government, that it's, it's much more difficult and in some cases impossible to make the self. Because the whole purpose of a, of a human life, a well-lived, a good, flourishing human life, in part at any rate, is the construction of something which is uh, um, something that has integrity the integration of all those different aspects of ourselves that make us what we are. And so the building of a self is part of a, of a life narrative, a part of a life journey. And uh, if you're under uh, oppression or compulsion, uh, if other people are telling you what to do or to be or to think, you can't do that. And so that one very important point here is that liberty is necessary for the, the, the full realization of selfhood. Um, should we go and have a look at one of the other works in the exhibition? 
Um, there's a piece on the other side of the room, which we're walking across to now, by an early, well, mid-period sort of Gilbert and George from 1980 called Intellectual Depression. So sort of a uh, typical um, Anthony, what do you think Gilbert of the picture? George, uh, Piece. I suppose notably they are absent in it and what you have is a kind of stark black thorny looking tree against a brilliant yellow sky, to very toxic looking sky. Synergy really between the title of the, of, the, of the image and the image itself which is stark and it has a kind of yearning to it, all the twigs which are bare, leafless, uh, reaching out into the sky. Um, reaching away from us into something which is very distant and dangerous looking. That's an extremely striking image. A big one too, it, it occupies quite a lot of the wall and so uh, it dominates this part of the room. I suppose finally I'd like to ask you, I mean, as a philosopher, what, what kind of freedom do you find that you need to work? Well, firstly, of course, one needs uh, intellectual freedom, ultimate intellectual freedom. Um, if there were any prescriptions on what it was possible to think or what it's impermissible to think, then it would be impossible to do any kind of thinking of any worth at all. So that's the first and greatest freedom. But the second freedom has to be a freedom to encounter others and to travel, to move around this world, and in particular the social world, which means going to other countries, uh, talking to other people, listening to their views, being able to read what they've written. All these freedoms are essential too. As soon as any one of those holes is blocked up, the air starts getting stale inside. And so, you know, you can't have mind without, without light, movement and freedom. So, Anthony, thank you very much for spending the time with uh, me this afternoon, having a look, sneaky look in uh, Whitechapel's new gallery spaces. Um, what do you think, a triumph for the liberal arts? Well, firstly, it was a real pleasure to be here with you. And yes, I think it's going to be great when it's reopened.